At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. A playlist original. Just watch me. The medium is the message. Proof is a proof. What kind of proof? It's a proof. It has no core identity. Smashed potatoes are no gravy, you know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Hello and welcome to Just Watch Me. I'm Kate. And I'm Liv. And today on the podcast, we have Laura Palmer, who's the host of podcast Island Crime. Prior to starting her podcast, she spent nearly three decades as a journalist working at the CBC. Season two of her podcast entitled Gone Boys details her investigation into the missing men of Vancouver Island. Gone Boys uses victim-focused storytelling to consider the question, could a serial killer be preying on the men in Vancouver Island? In this series, Laura also examines some of the challenges facing men who are isolated and marginalized due to brain injury, trauma, mental illness, or disability. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We're so excited to speak with you, Laura. Thank you for having me. Starting off, uh, you say on the podcast, I'm not a sensationalist, and that formerly you reported on transit, elder care, and housing. Um, What drew you to this kind of a story? So I I said that because I think for people who, um, you know, listen to true crime, they may be used to a certain kind of storytelling. And certainly when you see the word serial killer, you may be thinking that you're going to be hearing a particular kind of, of storytelling. And so I just wanted to be clear that that's what I wasn't setting my audience up for. And yet, Um, I do believe that the men who have gone missing on Vancouver Island are more likely at this point to have been victims of homicide and that some of those cases are connected. So I, you know, I wanted, I wanted to let people know this is a possibility that there is a serial killer here. And yet it's not that I'm going to be spending a lot of time, you know, getting into Uh, gory details or drawing people into some kind of horror story. And, and kind of towards the beginning of your podcast too, you, you set the context for, um, for this potential homicide, as you've said, and, and you noted that you were a journalist in the nineties during the time of uh, the Robert Picton story. And so I'm curious how, what you learned from how that story was covered and how it affected how you approached reporting on this story. Well, um, th- thank you for um, asking that question because it's, it's key for me. I, uh, I was around, it was early days for me when um, Picton was murdering women in Vancouver's downtown east side, early days as a journalist for me. And I do remember, you know, the police being asked repeatedly, authorities, uh, the mayor, you know, everyone really at the time being asked, is this a serial killer? Because so many women were going missing and advocates in the downtown east side, other prostitutes, um, even their clients were saying, look, something is wrong. And yet for a long period of time, we had, you know, well, what we now know was just wrongheaded thinking that the women were maybe out on a bender or that the nature of the work was transient or that maybe they didn't want to be found. And meanwhile, of course, their loved ones were saying, no, like, even though my daughter is a prostitute, she checked in regularly or she had children or, you know, there were lots of reasons for her to um, be checking in with us and she wouldn't just go missing. So all of this kind of thing was being said and the police were still reluctant to think that it could be a serial killer. Now, with good reason, um, 
because serial killers are rare and there had been times in the past uh, in the Vancouver downtown east side where people had thought perhaps there was a serial killer and there wasn't. So I'm, I'm not saying that I don't understand why it took so long. Um, I get the context, but at the same time, when I looked at what was happening here on Vancouver Island, where a number of men had gone missing, I did think it was important to just ask the question. And yeah, serial killers are rare, but maybe not as rare as we like to think. Throughout this story, you make a conscious effort to keep the missing men at the forefront of the story. Can you talk about why this was so important to you and why this is so important to this kind of storytelling? I think most of us in our lives probably have someone, a, a relative, a friend, who, you know, is going along, leading a life with a purpose and value, and then something happens. Um, a diagnosis of schizophrenia, an accident and a, a brain injury or um, addiction. And all of these kinds of things can really take your life off on a completely different path. And with most of the men that I looked into here on the island who had gone missing, had some kind of trauma in their life that really put their life on a different path. And so when I looked at how little uh, publicity had been had around any of these cases, it just seemed to me that these men had gone missing and that while their families cared deeply, there really hadn't been much public discussion about their cases in large part because, well, I believe because they were marginalized men, men who had some of the issues I just talked about, or in other cases, you know, had some low level of criminality, but enough for people to look at a missing person poster and see a mugshot and think, well, why do I care about this guy? And so I really felt like I wanted to bring their stories forward and give their families a voice. Hmm. Absolutely. And so you entitled season two, Gone Boys. So can you tell us a little bit about who the Gone Boys are? Yeah. Um, well, I'll start with uh, the first person we hear in the series, a young man named Brandon Kearney. Brandon is from Port Alberni, which for listeners who've never been to Port Alberni, it's a smallish town on Vancouver Island. It's kind of the pit stop for people on the way to Tofino, actually. Um, and Brandon grew up here, had like, a, you know, kind of happy uh, childhood life. His parents did split up, but, you know, he had a loving family and by all accounts was like, you know, athlete, popular, really handsome guy, everything going on for him. And then in his late teens, he has a car accident and has a very serious brain injury. And he's never the same again. He's not really able to work. He tries from time to time, but you know, he, he doesn't have the, the focus, the attention that is needed to maintain a job. And he also has a, um, a temper. And really in some ways, uh, people describe him as uh, quite childlike sometimes in his behavior. And so Brandon is kind of, he's, he's living a life of, well, poverty. He's uh, occasionally homeless and he is hanging around with some people um, in shelters and whatnot and being exposed to um, some criminality as well. And so when Brandon goes missing, uh, at first, people are people in his life think, well, maybe he's just gone off. He did like to go for long walks. Maybe he just, you know, needed to take a break. Um, but after a time, they realize, no, he's been gone for too long. And no one at the shelter has seen him. His girlfriend hasn't seen him. His ex-girlfriend, sorry, hasn't seen him. And 
finally, you know, after a week or two, his family alerts the police and a search begins. They really don't think that he has the capacity to pick up and go establish a new life for himself. And they also know he loved in particular his mom. He was very close to his mom that he would have left his mom just like that. And I should say one of the things uh, that is true in all of the cases I looked into, nobody has ever been found. And so while it's true that people go missing all the time, tens of thousands of people go missing every year, it is also true that like 98% of those people are found, as in the cases are resolved one way or another. But for the men I've looked at, they're just gone. Like there are no bodies and the families therefore have no answers. So Brandon's story is the first, uh, the first story I tell in this series. And, um, and I really got to spend a fair amount of time with Brandon's mom and dad and uh, his girlfriend, his uncle, you know, just people who are close to him. And really they miss him so much. He was just such a big part of their lives. So again, when people see this uh, missing poster of Brandon, it is a mugshot. And he looks like tired and kind of down on his luck, but it is like a far cry away from the family pictures that they have, where even after his brain injury, you know, he, he loved being outside and there's some great pictures of him, you know, in his outdoors kind of looking uh, Gore-Tex and all that stuff. And he just looks like, you know, a, a totally lovable, great character. Um, you mentioned that Brandon had a brain injury and, and that's something that's common with some of the other men. They um, often have either severe physical trauma like that, or with, in the case of Desmond, severe emotional trauma, like um, Desmond witnessed uh, um, the murder of a family member when he was just four years old. Can you maybe talk about how this like emotional and physical trauma can kind of interact with victimology in these types of cases? Yeah. So you know, Desmond is the youngest of the men that I looked at. He was 14 when he disappears from the side of the highway. And, you know, Desmond is a young Indigenous man, one of three Indigenous men who are missing from his community right now. Desmond's mom, you know, talked about how he is like a really bright little kid. He loves playing chess. He's you know, smart, funny. And if you see uh, any of the pictures I shared on social media, he's also a really handsome kid, you know, big smile, just a, a really promising life, hopefully ahead of him. But in his life, as you mentioned, he has this horrible trauma when he's young. Um, he does witness a murder and his mom says after that, he's never really the same. He has some behavioral issues. He has trouble uh, sticking with school, even though he's very, very smart. And really, again, as uh, with Brandon, it's that one trauma in his life that seems to really derail what could have been a promising life. And so this is just something I heard time and time again, both from families and from some of the experts I spoke with that, um, you know, homeless people, marginalized people, so often there is some kind of serious trauma that, you know, left untreated um, out there in the community leaves these guys really vulnerable. And the lack of resources for um, treating trauma is something, again, that I heard over and over uh, from people. Brandon's dad, uh, sorry, Brandon's uncle, happens to be an outreach worker uh, who worked closely with the homeless population here. And so he, you know, he's a guy who could access anything that was out there. Like he's so familiar with all the programs and treatment, but he said, you know, somebody with a brain injury in a small town, there's just very little for them and they just can't fit in. So trauma, I think is like really um, the most, serious thread that runs through the lives of these guys. 
So we just obviously talked a lot about um, their, their common trauma, but they do have a number of other commonalities between them. Um, and some of them, you know, may have even known each other. So can you talk about, you know, how these uh, commonalities become really important to the story? Yeah. So, you know, when I, when I, I, I should back up, I suppose, um, when I was trying to think of what uh, story I was going to focus on for season two of Violent Crime, um, the missing man was something that caught my attention because so many people online in missing persons groups and Reddit threads and whatnot were kind of just raising the question, like saying, there's a lot of missing guys here in this area. Why isn't anybody talking about that? And, you know, so as I started to try and pull together information about, you know, how many men were missing and how long had they been missing for? And like, just look at some of the characteristics. I immediately ruled out the men where, you know, it seemed more likely that something else had happened. As in, there is um, a young man who's missing from the same area uh, as Desmond Peter, but he was last seen, you know, on the side of a river and his community believes he drowned. So I wasn't going to include him in this investigation because it seemed more likely that something else had happened to him. And that was true of a number of the men that I looked at, you know, whether they were say an elderly man um, with Alzheimer's who had last been seen out hiking, you know, then it seemed like an accident was probably more likely. So the men that I looked at, the things they had in common um, were that they had been missing for more than a year. I didn't wanna look into the stories of men who had been uh, missing for less than that, because as we know from statistics collected over the last decade, most people do uh, are found alive or dead within a year and actually found much, much sooner than that. But I made a year kind of my, my cutoff point. So they, they had to have been missing for more than a year. There could not be any body found. And then I started talking, I, I had that group of men, and then I started talking to their families and reading their stories to see what, if anything else, um, uh, knit these stories together or could potentially knit these stories together. And it was then, uh, and as I started to look at these men, that all of those things I was talking about started to come to the forefront. That, you know, they were vulnerable in some way because of trauma and disability in their lives. Most of them spent a lot of time alone on or near the highway. Uh, most cases walking, but some cases on their bikes. And, you know, and then there were some things that were particular to some of the men and not the others. Um, three of the men uh, had some connection with a fish plant in Port Alberni. Two of the men uh, worked at a therapeutic farm. And I think actually three of the missing men did, but I was never able to fully confirm the third. But, you know, there were these small, small links, which are, you know, entirely possible to be a coincidence. But after I put the stories out there, I began hearing from people who said, well, these two actually knew each other. I was visiting, you know, Daniel McDonald, one of the men. And when I was visiting him, I met Brandon Kearney. They, they knew each other. Um, and again, you know, maybe it's just a coincidence, but it wasn't clear to me that uh, police were aware of some of these connections. And I thought it was important to put it out there. For sure. You hinted at this a little bit. We talked about how these men are, are vulnerable um, and, and likely to be loners and spend a lot of time alone. You described them, um, and you have an episode entitled this, you describe them as misfits which I think has a connotation about how also how they're perceived in the community. Can you talk about 
what did you mean by misfits? Yeah, so it is, it is a term that came up often when I was talking with people who work with marginalized men or even from their families in the sense that uh, these men did not fit in their communities. There wasn't a place for them, even though in most cases they're from here. You know, I think you'll hear at one point, um, uh, one of the workers I talked to says, there's this kind of perception that these men, these missing men, uh, like came from somewhere else, you know, that they're like from out East, you know, that they came West kind of looking for work and good weather or whatever, and then just vanished off the face of the earth. Well, that's not true. These are, these are men who are from these communities, who grew up in these communities. I mean, Daniel McDonald did move here from Nova Scotia, but that was as a teen and he'd lived here on the West Coast for decades by the time he disappeared. So it was that sense that, you know, even though these men are from their communities, their communities in some cases just did not seem to embrace them and when they were gone, did not seem to have that kind of wraparound support for families that maybe you see in, in, in other cases of missing people. You also talk about how they're street involved and they end up moving from, uh, from the city and going deeper into the woods to escape vigilante behavior. So can you talk a little bit about this migration and describe some of that vigilante behavior? Yeah, so um, this is a phenomenon that I really became aware of when I was in the middle of um, working on Gone Boys. And there were some murders in an area in the woods, not far from where I live. And three people were murdered and a fourth was um, shot, but alive. And when the coverage started happening around this case, we learned that this had been, um, well, basically a homeless encampment out in the woods. And some of the, the workers who um, spent time with marginalized men said, oh yeah, like this has been happening for years. The guys are moving further and further out into the woods because, you know, they don't feel welcome in the towns and they want, they just want to get away from being hassled. And, you know, one worker talked about as many as 16 of these encampments in and around the Parksville Qualicum area. Um, and so, you know, as soon as I heard that, I thought, well, gee, maybe, maybe that's possibly where some of these men went at least for a time before they went missing. And I, you know, I did hear from a couple of the families that that was so, that their um, loved ones had at various points lived in homeless encampments out in the woods. And so I did get a chance to go out with a worker um, who was kind enough to take me out, you know, after they were doing their kind of rounds uh, at soup kitchens and delivering blankets and that sort of thing to the homeless in the community, they go out into the woods where they know these guys are camping and they're there, you know, they're just like living under tarps and in some cases tents and uh, coming into town when they need to, but otherwise just trying to stay off grid. And, you know, it's incredibly unsafe because you know, a lot of these guys are drug users. And as we know, uh, right across the country, and in particular here on the West Coast, the opioid epidemic is just like claiming lots of lives, but in particular, um, young men's lives. And so these guys are like, you know, isolated, and alone. And in some cases, dying of overdoses out in the woods. This was one of the most, I think, jarring parts of the podcast is when um, your guide Coco takes you to this encampment, and, and the, what really stuck with me was 
when Coco explained the decoy uh, tent that had been set up by people who were living in the encampment. And I think that it was so jarring because it sounds, it, it kind of gives the imagery that almost like a, a war, like they're in battle and they're in, in encampments um, in like a, a war <laughs> to try and avoid being harassed. Can you explain the, de- the decoy encampment and yeah. maybe what that says about how these people are being treated? Yeah, so um, when we when we we drove outside of town a little bit, this is outside of Parksville, a community that is largely, you know, retirement, beaches, golfing, it's very pretty tourist uh, retirement kind of town. Um, but we drove outside a little bit and parked the van and walked into the forest. And, you know, we're, we didn't walk too far in before I saw a tent, you know, in, in plain sight, like off the trail, but you could see it. And I was kind of gesturing to it and thinking, oh, maybe somebody's over here. And they said, oh, no, no, that's a, that's a decoy tent. You know, they, they just, wherever they're camping, they'll put uh, up a tent and leave some stuff around, making it look like somebody's there. So that if anybody from the community is looking to cause trouble or hassle someone, they'll target that tent. Um, And, you know, you're right, like it does say something about what is happening out here. Uh, And I think um, later on in, in the podcast, you hear about how Campbell River has had a number of incidents where homeless people have been, you know, well, killed and beat up and set on fire. Like it's, um, it really is, uh, well, so disturbing. Now, the other thing I will say, you know, because I did want to get a sense of, of the kind of community feeling around some of this, I joined a bunch of these Facebook groups that are, you know, like called things about thieving awareness, that, that kind of thing. And yeah, there is a high level of frustration with property crime and a feeling that, you know, they're, you know, they just can't leave anything outside and be safe from these guys who they see as threats to their property and their safety. So that frustration is real. And I, I get that, but I also felt like it was contributing to a climate where the the men didn't feel safe and then were therefore putting themselves into increasingly unsafe situations uh, as well. And of course, one of the other, you know, potentially dangerous situations um, that they were putting themselves, well, potentially in because of um, the nature of highways um, was that several of the missing men were known to walk and bike alone um, along the highway. So um, can you talk, I felt like the highway was kind of this character um, in the podcast. And so can you talk about how, how highways are used um, by predators and, and why they pose such a great risk to the victims? Yeah. So, you know, stranger abductions, serial murders, all these things are rare. And again, I will just say at the outset that I know that to be true. But we also know um, from things like the Highway of Tears and numerous examples down in the United States that some predators do use the highways as a place to troll for easy victims. And when I say easy victims in the States, largely we were talking about prostitutes and people who were picked up hitchhiking in those circumstances. Here, what I believe is possible is that the highway could have made it easy for people to target some of these men because it's dark, because they are alone and there's no like there's nobody out there, there's no witnesses. And if you are, you know, in an occupation that puts you out there on the road, or even if you're not, even if you just know that you're likely to find these guys out there, they would be easy to pick up and have them go missing. And so, you know, when I ran this, uh, this idea, 
past the FBI, who I speak with in the podcast, you know, they, they were reluctant to step on anybody's toes and get involved in an investigation they haven't been asked to look at. But they did say the, the, the description I was giving them of the kind of victim fit with what they have looked at in their serial killer, their highway serial killer initiative that they've been doing down there for over a decade. And staying on some of the maybe geographic factors that, that could give rise to, to victimhood, um, you note that BC is somewhat of, of a hotspot for missing people in Canada. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the geography of the island itself may actually contribute to violent crime and missing persons cases? Yeah, so, um, well, when I talked to the police, you know, one of the things they talk about right away is there's a lot of wilderness, there's a lot of ocean, and there are a lot of people, tourists and others who are drawn here for all of that and maybe come here ill-prepared and, you know, have an accident and, and die out there and, and are listed as missing. And so, you know, that does account for some of the missing people out here for sure. But it also, unfortunately, can make it quite easy for um, bodies to be uh, disposed of. We know, for example, that um, there's a lot of gang activity here on the island and uh, that there have been other murders where the gangs have disposed of bodies here on the island. It's just like, you know, when you have all that ocean and you have all that forest, it, it's not hard for people to, um, well, for bodies to be disposed of and never to be found again. Certainly, it's quite chilling to think about. Um, so one of the fascinating parts of your series uh, certainly was how you debunked a number of myths and common misconceptions about missing people. Um, so can you get into kind of what you learned about um, misconceptions during your investigation? Yeah, I mean, I think the big one is, it is like so easy to just see the constant flow of missing person reports and think, holy smokes, there are a lot of people going missing. Uh, well, anywhere really, but uh, here in BC especially. But it turns out that almost all of those people are found and most of them are found alive. And the numbers are really um, look much higher than they are because the case, it could be that the same person is um, taking off repeatedly or in the case of children, you know, frequently you'll see the same people running away time and time again. And each time they run away, they're counted as another, another missing person report. And so, I mean, I think the first thing I wanted to say was, yes, a lot of people go missing, um, but mostly those people are found. And I really wanted to focus on the people uh, who had gone missing and not been found. And so, you know, just kind of wanting to put out there that the numbers, while they seem alarming, the numbers of long-term missing are relatively small in the hundreds, not tens of thousands. Um, I suppose one of the other things that I thought was important, and I should have said this at the outset as to one of the reasons I wanted to look at the men's cases, is that a lot of true crime tends to focus on women as victims. And while, uh, you know, certainly there are many women who go missing, particularly Indigenous women, and those stories need to be told, it is true that more men go missing and that men are less likely to be found as well. And so I felt like those stories just don't get told enough. And I wanted to make my second season not about a woman who was a victim. 
And what was your, what was their reaction, you know, from the audience having that, that switch in the narrative from, you know, the, this true crime genre that's so largely focused on women as victims. Um, whereas you're coming in and, and introducing a, a different type of victim maybe than what we imagine. You know, I, uh, I was worried about that. I wondered if people, you know, just might not care as much about um, these guys as they did about uh, Lisa Marie Young, who was the focus of my first season. But I, you know, I didn't find that. I, I felt like the people I was hearing from were saying, you know, thank you for, for sharing these men's stories. And in many cases, I heard from people who actually knew these men and hadn't known that they had gone missing, you know, I mean, it, it was like that kind of level of awareness, such a low level of awareness that people who, you know, had gone to school with or worked with or whatever, some of these men just hadn't, hadn't actually known that they were missing. So I, you know, it was a concern I had at the outset, would the men, would people be empathetic uh, to their stories? Would they want to know what happened to them? And by and large, I think people, people did and people do care about these men. Can you talk about your, some of your theories about what happened to these men? And you do engage with a few different possibilities. Um, and perhaps if you could articulate, at what point did you start really considering these disappearances could be the work of a serial killer or maybe several uh, murderers? Um, in the series, I talked to Kim Rosmo, who is a former Vancouver police detective who is now a criminologist in Texas. And he was one of the first people to recognize a serial killer um, was likely in the downtown east side. And one of the things he said to me was like, really, it's incredibly hard for police to make the determination in a case like yours, where there are no bodies, there's no forensics, um, that, that a serial killer could be there. What would it take uh, for authorities to imagine it could be a serial killer? Well, one of the things he said was, have there been any other attempted abductions? Because, you know, for the most part, these serial killers or um, killer, uh, you know, they're going to make mistakes and people are going to get away. And we know that has happened time and time again in other cases. And so I did come across a case where it does appear a young man did escape an abduction attempt here on the island. And his story was one of the things that made me think this could be uh, you know, a targeted kind of thing and not um, a random uh, series of events. And then when I looked at the statistics, there were actually a number of um, abductions related to missing men here in BC in recent years. Now, most of those are related to drug crimes. Um, and it's possible that some of these men's disappearances are also related to drug crimes as well. And then the other thing that uh, Kim Rosmo said was, you know, most likely it's going to just take numbers. Like, you know, I, I focused on five stories really in the series, um, but there are more. And unfortunately, you know, even since I published and uh, did this work, more men have, have gone missing. So. You know, is it going to be the case that people don't make uh, any connections or law authorities don't make any connections until there are more missing men or until someone who is abducted comes forward, um, another person who is abducted comes forward? I, I don't really know what it's going to take. I will say I have continued to stay in touch with the RCMP and as recently as last week, was once again trying to make the case to bring the investigating officers together just to kind of update people on the investigations, compare notes, see what, if anything, 
could uh, connect these cases in, in their minds. And they are, they are considering it. They are aware of the podcast. Um, and, uh, you know, I am still hopeful that that will happen. And one of the other possibilities that you do engage with is that perhaps one or all of these men could be off somewhere living anonymously and just not wanting contact with their family. Um, can you discuss the, like the likelihood you've already talked about the serial killer theory, but can you discuss the likelihood of that being true for these men and maybe some of the challenges that they have and that they would have pulling off something like that, given their specific circumstances? Yeah. So that was another thing that the RCMP, you know, suggested to me that could be true with some of these guys. Uh, certainly, you know, their lives had some tr- had some tr- trouble in them. You know, they weren't necessarily living in the happiest of circumstances. And could they have decided, hey, I've had enough of this and I'm going to go try and set up a new life for myself. I did talk with a company that actually helps people do that. But, you know, what he told me and what I came to understand from talking to the families is that, you know, trying to do that is really hard, like increasingly so, um, to try and establish a new life, a new name, new credit, new banking, all that kind of stuff for yourself. Uh, the, The service that the company provides is incredibly expensive and not something that any of these men could have afforded. But more than that, uh, given, you know, what was described to me in terms of their capacity, not at all something I could see any of these men having the ability to do, even if they wanted to. Um, You know, Desmond Peter is probably the one where his family, you know, had recently had some information that uh, maybe he had taken off and tried to establish a new life for himself. But honestly, I, I, I find it, uh, it well, if, it, if it's true, it will be an incredible story. And uh, I, I would love it to be true for their families. But I just, I don't see it. So I think, um, I mean, I, to be honest, generally find true crime podcasts to be a little bit frightening and a little too scary for me. But the thing I really liked so much about your podcast and the thing that I think made it so palatable for someone like me who, who finds it a little, little intimidating is that it was so victim focused. And then it was really right at the end that you started talking about what a potential offender might actually look like. And Katie and I both talked about how much we loved um, this particular quote that you said that you had met murderers in the past and you just, you didn't find them that interesting. In fact, you found them narcissistic and dull. Um, And so why do you think so much of uh, serial killer media uh, focuses on the offender often to the detriment of the victims? And uh, do you think it's changing at all? Uh, Yeah. You know, God, it's such a good question. I'm uh, since I started doing this podcast, I've joined a lot of um, you know true crime groups and podcasting groups, and I I do find this whole fascination with um, these serial killers and murderers just uh, so bizarre, and and truly, when people actually, if you actually spend any time looking at some of these guys, they are just, well, first of all, they're horrible, they're horrible monsters, but, but they're also just not, not that interesting. And their lives without this in it would have been unremarkable at all. And so, but, but the people who are the victims, you know, I think for me, what I always feel is that loss of potential and when you talk to their families and talk to their friends about where they were at and what they were doing and look at what could have been possible in their lives, that's to me what is most compelling and most worthwhile in terms of focusing a, the story. And to, to spoil the story just a little bit, uh, you know, at the time you released the podcast, 
you don't have a resolution to any of these five men's stories. So how did you know it, it was time? How did you feel? How did you, how could you tell that you knew it was time to publish? Yeah. So, and this is, um, this is a frustration. I think, uh, some listeners may feel with these stories is that, you know, there isn't a real ending in the sense that we still don't know what happened with these men. But in some of the cases, there has been some movement and the possibility of finding answers for their families is, is real. And so, you know, I put these stories out there in the hope that some new information may surface, that the awareness itself could lead for someone to step up with information. You know, in um, some of the cases, it's felt that there are people in the communities who, who have information out there. Kel Kelly McLeod's case in, in particular, certainly there is a feeling in the community that there are people who know what happened and that the police should be closer to finding Kelly and, and making an arrest. So, you know, in terms of not having an ending exactly, that's, that's true. But I guess the ending for me is a hope for the families of these men that, uh, that, that these stories will potentially lead to answers. And, you know, certainly I think that there's a feeling within, within the podcast that there's been a lack of media coverage, that there's been a lack of um, outreach into the community for information. As you said, you know, people close to them didn't even necessarily know that they were missing or people who knew them. Um, and at the end of each episode, you ask people to reach out to you if they have any information about um, any of these men who are missing. So um, can you talk about some of the responses that you got as a result of, of that kind of plea for information? Yeah, I mean, in some cases, it was people simply reaching out and, and sharing like a, a story, you know, or a memory of these men, and really helping me to see their humanity, you know, so there was a fair amount of that. And then there were people who were reaching out and saying, hey, did you know that these, these people knew each other? And that happened a couple of times with some of the men. And then, you know, and this uh, is probably not surprising or shouldn't have been surprising to me, there are people who claim to have information about people they believe are murderers and sharing that kind of information with me, sharing specific names and uh, Facebook profiles. And, you know, so I did get some of that coming across, but, you know, unless I'm hearing from people who have direct knowledge, uh, that is not really something I can do much with. Are you following up on that information, the information you get about potential offenders? As much as I can. You know, in some cases, if I'm just sent a Facebook profile and said, hey, this, this guy is a creep, I think he's responsible. Uh, there's not much I can do with that, you know? So is there more updates coming um, regarding the story at all? I know you posted a spring, a spring 2020, 2021 update, um, but can we expect another episode at all? I would say, uh, as with Lisa's story, if there's any significant movement on any of the cases, I will update the stories for sure. Right now, you know, the main thing I would like to do is to hear from the RCMP, uh, specifically the investigators on these cases, because, you know, so far I've only been able to, in this series, speak with the RCMP uh, back east, their missing persons center, and uh, their media relations folks, who um, you know have have been helpful for sure. But it's the it's the lead investigators, those closest to the cases, that I think could be able to connect the dots. And uh, and and I would love to talk to them. So I'm still hoping that that will happen. 
And are you working on a season three of Island Crime? I am. Yes, I'm in the middle of that right now. Can you tell us anything no. at all? <laughs> of course <Sorry>. not. <laughs> no, you know what? Um, only because I never really know what's going to happen. A- and this is this is um, this is somewhat strange to me uh, as a journalist. Quite often, I have in mind where I'm going to take a story, uh, but in this one, really, I don't. I'm I'm just in the midst of collecting interviews and information and it could go 10 different ways. So I'm just, I'm just not saying much about it right now. Well, that's fair enough. Laura, can you let everyone know where they can find the podcast and how people can keep up with you and what you're up to? um, And if they have any information, how to contact you? Yeah. So um, the podcast is available wherever people listen to podcasts. Uh, This season two that we've been talking about is called Gone Boys. And the series itself is called Island Crime. And it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm reachable at laura at laurapalmer.ca. Or if you just Google Island Crime, um, my contact information is on my website as well. Oh, and I actually meant to mention when, you know, when you're Googling Laura Palmer, (laughs) uh, Twin Peaks comes up and I thought it was kind of a funny um, coincidence that, uh, you know, kind of like the crime, it's like fits with the crime genre. It does. It does. But I, I had my name first. So absolutely. Fair enough. Fair. Fair enough. Although, although I think, and I think this is true, we, the fictional Laura Palmer and I are the same age, right? Like, oh, so, that's yeah. funny. Yeah. yeah. It's a little, know, it's weird. It's, at least it's, she's fictional because otherwise it would be very confusing. It would be. Yes. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Laura. We've really appreciated you taking the time. Oh, you're you're welcome. Thank you for having me and thank you for your interest. And I know and I can tell you the families of these men are really grateful when um, their boys' stories are told. So thank you for taking an interest for sure. Definitely. And we hope to have you back um, after you finish season three. Sounds of- good. Who knows what? (laughs) Excellent. If you want to keep up with us in between episodes, you can follow us at Just Watch Me Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Send us your thoughts and feelings about the show at justwatchmepodcast at gmail.com. And it really helps us if you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Thanks. See you next week. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.